Now, for those who are new, welcome. My name is Chi, Senior Pastor of this church. And over the last um, two weeks, we've been doing uh, a vision series. So in the first week, we kind of talked about God, uh, a biblical imagination, a biblical confidence that God cares about all of life. Yeah, He wants to redeem all of life. And we don't want to let the devil win, but when Christ came, He didn't just save us into a personal relationship, but He wants to redeem and restore everything in our life. And then last week, I shared a little bit about then what does that then mean for us? Uh, how our vision, which is to build disciples who represent Jesus to everyone, everywhere, with everything, for you to be able to see that that vision is not just the church's vision, but it's God's redemptive vision for your life. Amen? Yeah? And I really pray that you'll be able to uh, see that. So if you've missed those last two weeks, please go online and be able to check it out. Um, but I thought as a way to segue into this, it'd be really great to hear uh, a bit of a live testimony from a, a, a ravishing young man by the name of Jun Hoi. So give him a, a hand as he comes up. Yep. Now, um, I've known Jun for quite a long time. I remember when he first came into youth group uh, back in the Sarton Road days. And, uh, and now he's uh, a, a dad, a husband. Uh, and a lawyer, and, uh, and so I just thought it would be really great to hear from him, a member of our church, just how he kind of engaged with last week and, and the vision of our church. Yeah? So June, just, uh, why don't you share with us uh, why you believe in this vision, uh, like sincerely from the heart, not because I made you do it, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, no, uh, why I believe in the vision. Um, I think, I mean, when you first start, when we first launched the vision, uh, I've as I've tried to live it out in life, I've actually seen God at work um, in my life. So in the past, well, since the vision was launched, uh, I don't know, six years ago or whatever it was, uh, my wife Chu and I have been through various seasons. Um, so we were newly married, and then we had a baby, and then we went through a period of sickness, and then now we're starting, uh, we started a new business. And so... Through that, there were probably periods where you know we probably weren't well, we weren't serving in the traditional sense, and but still, uh, I could see God work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what does this vision mean for you then personally? Like... Yeah. So I mean, even just from that, when we were going through, as at the start of COVID, and just before then, we were actually serving in Emerge campus, and we've been there for quite a few years already, and we were actually going to continue serving there, but what ended up happening was uh, Chu's sister got really sick, uh, she went to hospital, ICU, and, and her family went through a very difficult time, and so we made the decision to, to move in with them, to, to support them, and at the same time, uh, our baby boy at the time, Timmy, he, had, he started get developing very severe eczema and allergies, so much so that you sort of had to like sit over him and trying not to get him to scratch, although he was, you know, he was scratch himself raw, and it was, it was yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And at the same time, uh, Chu herself was going through health issues that was quite debilitating uh, and really affected her quality of life. And so we made the step, like, we just really couldn't, you know, serve in, 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 ministry, in church ministry, so we made the decision to take a step back. Um, and what ended up happening was, I think, when we did that, I would be lying if I said there wasn't a sense in me to go. They were, they were saying uh, we're not being as effective as we were before when we were serving in Emerge Campus. When we were seeing, you know, young people come in and that sort of thing and building relationships with them, you know, we, we were. You know, there's a sense that oh, you know, am I doing God's work? You know, am I 
being a good disciple. Um, but I think with the vision in mind at that time, we realised that God actually was working through us. You know, he was working through... Well, at the time, our everywhere and everyone became largely family, right? Uh, and he was working through, you know, us being able to communicate better because so that we can work together better because especially when we're both really tired at the end of our rope, going through sickness, we really needed that. Uh, you know, he was working through my uh, stewardship of, or my using my own time, you know, doing, using it well so that I could have also time to rest and be available uh, when I needed to be. Um, my, our relationship with my in-laws, right, living under their roof but learning to honour them and respect them while setting appropriate boundaries for how we want to raise our son and our family. So he was sort of working through my everything, I guess you can say that, and, you know, everyone, but it just looked different to when we were serving in, in campus. Um, so, um, yeah, so that, that's sort of how we um, saw that in, in that time uh, and see God work. Yeah. And I think that's a great articulation because, you know, life, you know, circumstances happen. So does that mean you're no longer in ministry, but God is in the ministry of life, yeah? And so therefore, life is our ministry. And that, you know, to break that, you know, compartmentalization is very, very critical. Then you can work with God and see God at work in you and around you, yeah? Yeah, I think that was a big thing, like just breaking that. I think it was very compartmentalized, uh, for, for me at least. Um, and to, to see that actually God, like the whole whole of life, it's actually very much God is working through our whole lives, my whole life, yeah. Yeah. And also to recognize that it looks different in different seasons, you know. Now, um, okay, well, what does that now look like? Uh, how is this vision at work in your life? Give some examples, maybe in your work. Yeah, so it was actually shortly after I, um, we, you launched a vision. I, I remember I was early, still early on in my career, and I, was, I went to have a chat to another Christian family lawyer who was a few years ahead of me, and I asked him, what, um, how does your faith and work intersect? And I remember he gave this answer like, oh, you know, I conduct myself morally and ethically and every now and again I might get a chance to share my faith. And then I left that going, I feel like there's more. Um, I feel like almost a sense that, well, I can, in at least all professions and, and vocations, you can be moral and ethical and sometimes you can share your faith. But uh, what was God's vision for me as a family lawyer in my work? And so over the next few years after that, um, I was just learning how to be a family lawyer, um, you know, developing skills and experience. Uh, and it was, and I guess, progressively, I understood more and more uh, that, you know, it's, yeah, it's not just about being a moral, ethical, or a, or a nice lawyer who shares his faith every now and then, um, but that God can actually work in my actual work. I had, sort of had this realisation, like, for example, a drafter, we draft documents and stuff as lawyers, um, fun stuff. Um, so we, <laughs> I was drafting like, drafting like a settlement document, for example. I, um, I, I, I realized that God, you know, in, in, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a passage in Matthew 5, 13, where it talks about salt and light, you know, your salt and light. And then uh, it goes, you know, in the same way, let your uh, light shine before others and they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And you go, oh yeah, being moral and ethical, share your faith every now and then. But... Uh, as I, as we, I sort of this vision developed in, in my mind and in my life, I sort of go, went. Actually, good deeds actually also includes good work, because going back to that settlement dro- document drafting example, I d- draft the document right. It's if I do a good job, it means that 
I'm bringing God's peace. I'm being, bringing God's security uh, because that will limit the, the, the chance of dispute in the future. That will bring, that will give the, that, that, that's family certainty. And if we expand it further, and I was just thinking about this, if we expand it further, well, if they're not going back to court, it means then people, we're not using public resources to bring this matter through court. So I just like, I was realizing that God has, I, I see this, I'm drafting this document, I'm like, I should do a good job. But then I go, wait, what happens if I do a good job? This is what happens. And I, I, and I sort of, that's when I sort of realized when you talk about, it doesn't matter whether you're a, you know, a homemaker or an accountant or a factory worker or a student, whatever it is, when we do good work, then it, it has a ripple effect out. And that's how people see, that, that's how people see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Yeah, that's great. Give him a hand. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, June and I talk, and I really love how he's really integrating that into his life, especially into his, his work. And he's got a lot of stories around how he's trying to do that, so please speak to him after as well. I mean, in, in simple, cheese simple terms would be like, you know, imagine being a Christian, but you're a plumber, they're your plumber, they're your doctor, they're your accountant, and they do a really bad job, and they go, I love you. <laughs> right? You go, thank you very much, but can you just do your doctoring properly? Can you make sure you do your accounts properly? Like, you know what I mean? It actually matters. They're not, they're not separate, yeah? So I love that articulation around representing Christ in all our work. Now, I think uh, I wanted to give that as a living example, but I believe each and every one of us would have different stories. And I think the more each of us step into it and the more stories we have to tell, the more it gives people an idea what this can look like in your life. Okay. So now today, what I want to be able to do is I want to talk about, um, as the last part in this three-part series, building a whole of life discipleship church. What does then this mean for us as a church? And why do we do the things that we do? And how does that help to us building the vision? So I'm going to go into Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read two passages. This is something that's very familiar. But what I want to hone in on is practically what does that then mean. Okay? So it says Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47. Now it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Now a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, they shared the money with those in need, they worshipped together at the temple each day, but also they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, and all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, this is just another expression of how the church, the corporate church, gathered. And it says here, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray. Uh, Lord God, we just want to thank you for your word. 
God, we thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and in this place, God. God, I know that no matter what I say or how I say things, Lord, it cannot move your, the people's heart, your people's heart, unless you speak. So help us to come open-handed, open-hearted. Continue to complete the work that you have first begun in each and every one of our lives. In your name. Anyone said? Amen. You know, those passages are very, very familiar. Especially in the first passage in Acts chapter 2. You know, if, um, you know, as a pastor of a church, you know, it's very, very common when people go, well, you're going to build your church. These are the elements that you need. You need what? The teaching. Yeah. You need the fellowship, community. You need the Lord's Supper. And you need prayer. Amen. Right? We all know that. In fact, a lot of churches are built around that. And we build around those things. And we have those elements. Yeah? We try to incorporate many of those things. But what was interesting is that when you look at the church, when persecution came, right? What was incredible was that while the disciples were scattered, while well, the disciples were scattered everywhere and the apostles were just left where they were in Jerusalem, what did it say? Wherever the believers went, they preached the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Can I hear an amen? Now, when COVID hit, and I've said this over and over again, when COVID hit, what happened to the church? We had the preaching, we had the community, we had the Lord's Supper, we had prayer. Now, it may not have been persecution, but when COVID hit and we weren't able to gather the way to I think COVID began to expose one of the greatest lessons that the church needed to learn. Because when I look at it, I'm going, is the church like this? Are we as churches in Australia, when COVID hits, it doesn't matter because wherever the disciples went, they were going to flourish. Can I hear an Amen. Right? But to be honest, I think some parts flourish, but a lot of it is like, oh man, everyone's gone. How do you bring them back? People struggle in life. But then when I read that, I'm going, that's incredible. The kind of church they were building, that no matter what happened to them, whether they were gathered or scattered, wherever the disciples went, they were able to represent Jesus to their everyone, everywhere, with their everything. And that made me begin to realize that, you know what, as a church, we can be really good at doing the functions of preaching, prayer, the Lord's Supper, building community, doing small groups. But do we have that ability, that disciple-making culture that builds disciples that no matter what happens, they're able to flourish? And so that's why if I was to articulate it this way, the one thing that the early church was really good at, right, was making what we, I will call whole of life disciples. Disciples who makes disciples. Can I hear an amen? And I think that's what COVID unveiled. COVID exposed as churches in Australia, how good are we at actually forming and transforming, seeing the transformation of people to the power of Jesus Christ. People who are able to disciple and make other disciples as whole of life disciples. Because admittedly, we'll be pretty good at communicating. We can be good at running a service. We can be good at pulling community together. 
we can be good at crafting a prayer, but are we good at really making disciples who makes other disciples? And I believe, if I was to kind of translate what that is in my own language, I believe the early church, while they had the form, what they were really good at is that they had a disciple-making culture. Can I hear an amen? A disciple-making culture. You can have the form, but if you don't have the culture, it ain't going to work. Yeah? Culture is just how we, what we do in our space. Like I know, Asian culture, you come to my house, you're going to take off your shoes. Right? You're going to eat rice. Right? You're going to eat two-minute noodles. Right? I remember I was uh, part of a, a, a Christian leadership group, and there's about, I don't know, 30 of us. And I was like, only, the only Asians. But you know, in our church camps here in Clayton, when we go to church camps and in, at like supper time, all the two-minute noodles comes out. Right? But when I was in that group, I was like so afraid to take my two-minute noodles out because I'll be judged as if it was like poison. Right? <laughs> but that's culture, right? And, and so here I believe in, when you read it into the text, how on earth is it that no matter what happened to that church, it wasn't about the form. They had this culture. They were really good at knowing how to build whole-of-life disciples who know how to make other disciples. Can I hear an amen? And it was at this point of juncture where even though it was persecution, God was fulfilling His mandate to bring the good news from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? And this is where you see Philip begin to move. And the movement of the gospel move into the Gentiles and into the Samaritan space. And here, in the same way, if we want to see Australia reach for Christ, we've got to be great at building a disciple-making culture. Not just the form, but the culture. Now, what does that mean? So, I just want to share this, that, that I just had uh, an experience a few months ago. So, Eugenia and I uh, decided to go to New Zealand for our honeymoon in November. And out of everything that Eugenia wanted to do, she wanted to go to this resort. It was called Sherwood Resort. Now, in my mind, because of the price we were paying, I'm thinking, oh man, this is like a five-star resort, right? And then when I went there, I was underwhelmed. Can you understand why, right? And I'm like, a five-star resort? I paid so much money for this. Because I was expecting, you know, for a five-star resort, you'd have at least a swimming pool. But I found out when I got there, they filled the pool and built a shed on it. Right? I was expecting maybe a 24-hour uh, you know, uh, uh, concierge or food and drinks kind of menu, but there wasn't any of that. I was expecting maybe a gym or a spa, none of that. And my Asian mind is doing the mats and going, this doesn't add up. Right? But I mean, it, it, was, it, it was a good accommodation, right? Right? It's nothing bad or nothing wrong with it, right? And, but, but largely the bathrooms were renovated, but it was like a renovated shed, right? But it was still nice, right? But when I got there, the thing that tipped me then over was going, where's the TV? <laughs> I'm going, what? I paid this amount of money and you don't even give me TV? Like, at least a TV, right? But there was no TV, right? Anyway, they had this kind of garden there, and we ate this food. And so here I was, a little bit disgruntled. My Asian fleshiness was saying the, the mats just does not add up, you know, and so not worth the money. And then I then opened um, the hotel booklet. And what was interesting was then this page, and that's why I took a photo of it. 
And when you read it, it says, I respect for nature. And on the top thing, it says top 10. Sherwood was ranked in the world's top 10 most sustainable hotels by Expedia Travelers. Wow. So here I was looking for a five-star hotel, but little did I realize I was in one of the top 10 sustainable resorts in the world. Hmm. And then later it continued on about all these other metrics of what makes it the top 10 sustainable resort. 40,000 kilograms of plastic, grass, glass, and organic waste has been diverted from landfill over the last 24 months, reducing our operational waste by 50%. 97% of our kitchen produce is sourced from New Zealand, with the majority of this from the South Island. 60% plus of our wine we sell is produced in Otago and bottled in-house to reduce glass waste and transport miles. 99% of our organic waste is composted and returned to the garden to grow more food. Yeah? And it goes on and on and on. And in that moment, I felt God speak to me. Here I was, looking and expecting for a five-star resort, grumbling, complaining, criticizing, but little did I know, I was actually in one of the top 10 sustainable resorts in the world. And in that moment, I felt God say to me, Chi, in the same way, you're not building a five-star resort type church. You are building a whole of life discipleship church. And that requires a different way of measuring success. Can I hear an Amen. Amen. Because in some sense, you might be coming into this church and you might like some things, you know, there's still a bed, there's still heating, there's no TV, but you know, you might still have some of those things that churches have, but if you still have in your mind the picture of like a mega church and what you're going to get from it, unfortunately, you're going to be disgruntled like me because we're building a different kind of church. We're building a whole-of-life discipleship church. And so where a lot of typical churches would measure how many people attend, how much money is in the bank, how many small groups are we multiplying, how many services are we starting, how many salvations, how many baptisms, we measure all that, and we think that is part of kingdom fruitfulness. Can I hear an amen? But that is not the only thing we measure. It's important, just like that. How much more are we going to make this a five-star thing? Or are we going to redirect our energy and resources and time to think about what investing time and resources into other things that we consider as success and fruitfulness as a whole of life discipleship church? For example, you know what? I, and I'm starting to see the fruit of some of this. Yeah? Like baptisms. We did what? Two, three baptisms a few weeks ago. But little did I know that sometimes, like a few months ago, one person got baptized, right? Michelle with, uh, uh, um, with Tang and Amanda in Wayne's uh, house in a private pool. And we didn't even know about it until later. Amen? Right? There was a Cantonese pastor that was baptizing someone in the beach. Now, we could gather all the people and go, let's do a 50-people baptism in this one service. And all of you will go, yeah! And it's great celebration. But we, building a whole life discipleship church, is that we value the celebration here, 
but we also value the celebration outside the four walls. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? Like, I, I love the fact that we have leaders stepping up to build the Christ-centered church. I love the fact that Winston Yin and the team have started the chapel services and you have about 60, 80 people starting to come and hear the Word of God and worship together. Amazing. But a whole of life discipleship values that, but also values the fact that someone like Jun Hoi is starting his own family law practice, calling it Rise Family Law, and thinking, how do we bring God's redemptive wholeness, amen? Redemptive vision into families who are struggling with separation and divorce. Can I hear an amen? We want both kinds of leaders. Yeah? When we talk about finances, right? I love the fact that, you know, people feel that, you know, there's one person that had a story who I don't know who it is, but, you know, they had not been tithing and then got convicted that, and then decided to back pay the tithe and give it as a, an offering to God and to the church. Amazing. If that happened to me, if I was to be honest, I would have just started from zero from here. <laughs> right? But that conviction is amazing. God is at work. But God is also at work for, like I shared last week, the investor who's thinking, how do I multiply this amount of money, create an investment portfolio, and then donate it? I love both. I think it's amazing. I love about the fact that we're teaching the Word of God, and Frank and, you know, and myself and with way back in the past, we, you know, we used to do the Crip Bible School, and, and I know Frank's willing to kind of do a, a training session on how to learn the Word of God but I also love the fact that, you know, when I'm talking to Eugenia and then she was sharing about her boss who, uh, who, who wanted to learn more about reading the Bible and the Quran and, and then Eugenia started going to find ways to buy a Bible and then find ways with um, the Bible Project app so to provide her boss the resources so that she can learn the Word of God for herself. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? And so when we're building a whole-of-life discipleship church, it's going to look different. We're going to be measuring and doing different things. And so the reason why I want to share that is that I felt God say this to me. Chi, we're not building a mega church, but you're building a whole of life discipleship church. And unless people can understand that, bring people along, help them understand what we are building together so we can do it together. Can I hear an amen? amen? And so, when I first started as a senior pastor in 2017, this was what I started doing. It wasn't about the formats and all that. That was all secondary for me. For me, this is primary. Build a disciple, whole of life, discipleship culture. Amen? For anyone in organizational leadership, you know, they always say strategy, you know, uh, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You can have a strategy, but if you don't have the culture, it's not going to work. And we're talking about building a whole of life discipleship culture. So first thing I did, shared vision. There's only one vision in this church, and it's shared. Shared across the Cantonese service, the Mandarin service, and the English campus. Amen? One vision, shared vision. What is it? It's a disciple-centric vision. It's about building the disciple, not building the church. You build the disciple, you will get the church. The second thing is this, shared language. Because we all say, use language, but we mean different things. I mean, you know that in your relationships, in your marriage, you say one word, you hear it differently, yeah? Let alone 300 people here, yeah? I say one word, we all hear it differently. But how do we get shared language? Then when I say disciple now, how do you hear it? 
whole of life disciple. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? But that takes a while. If you go to someone else in another church and you say disciple, I guarantee you they're going to hear it differently. But we want shared language so that when we are talking, we're actually saying the same thing. We understand what we're saying so that we can move together. Just like in marriage, you find shared language, you can be united, you can move together. Third thing, shared priority. We have a lot of different things that we do. But in my mind, there's only one priority, one ministry. It's a disciple-making ministry. Amen? Nothing else. Yeah, it comes in a form of men's ministry, women's ministry, kids' church, local care. Yeah, yeah, it takes the form. But underneath it, in my mind, and something that I've been trying to drill through to the team, is to go, there's only one ministry in this church, guys. It's a building a whole-of-life disciple-making ministry. Yeah? And then the fifth, fourth thing I started to do was shared values. And this is where we started doing what we call disciple-making values. Values that drive the way we make disciples. Now, just as a show of hand, how many of us were here when we first launched the, 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 the disciple-making values? I just want to get a bit of a show. Put your hand up as high as you can. Yeah? Great. Yeah? At least half of us, or two-thirds of us. But this was my purpose, that we have shared values about how we go about making disciples. So the best way I can give this example is that imagine you're, in a, you're raising a family. Imagine I have 10 families here, Christian families, and I go, you know what? There's one way to raise your kids. What would you guys all say? Yeah? You're crazy. I don't want to listen to you. Right? But if we say there are values that we can all share, but we just express it differently in our context and with our kids. Can we all agree with it? Amen. Now, your most primary form of disciple-making is in your family. But yet in church, we think there's only one way. And so I've reorientated it. We reorientated it and go, values. What are the values that drive the way we go about making disciples? Yeah? So that in whatever context, whatever makeup, we can go about doing that. And I want to just walk through it. And I know some of us are going through it through our life groups. But I want to be able to speak to it so that we are all updated on the same page. But what I want to do with that is to join the dots between this value and why we do what we do. Is that okay? Yeah? Number one, we value, it's what I call grace. Everyone say grace? Grace. Grace, disciple-making values. Now, there's a whole heap of stuff in this. We've done two campaigns in this. We've got a whole bunch of teaching online. If you want to read it, read it there, okay? But for today, I want to give you a summary. Number one, we value groups and gatherings. We see that in the life of Jesus. And I've thought about it. Why do we need to gather as a church? You know, I've got really close friends that may not be in church, but it's like, why do we gather? Well, you know why? Because it's only in the community of faith where you'll experience and reveal Jesus more together than alone. You can't find Jesus in anywhere, in anywhere else. Can I hear an amen? And that is a unique offering of the body of Christ. And so we're saying we value groups and gatherings. A lot of churches value groups. But why do we? You can do life together. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Because you can study the Bible together. Well, yeah, that's part of it. No, it's this. Because we experience and reveal more of Jesus together than alone. Can I hear an amen? 
And so I'm not fussed. We're not fussed what kinds of groups and gatherings you come into as long as you realize you're not a lone ranger and you need the body of Christ. I've got a friend who used to go to church, got burnt out, never wanted to come to church again. Can you imagine if I went to them, hey, can you come life group, come life group, come church service? They don't want to do it. But they need the body of Christ. But they were willing to catch up with me. Am I not a group? Amen? But it's through us we experience and reveal more of Jesus. And as God confident, then they started connecting to a life group. But that step was way too big for them. And these values enable you to go, what kind of group and gathering is what needed for that individual? And now they're part, they're a full-fledged Christian on fire for God. Amazing. Right? And so groups and gatherings. But what does that look for us when we gather together? Number one. So over, over the time and period of the last six years, we have said the groups and gatherings that we kind of form ourselves around is life groups, what we call groups. Groups that size 20 and under, around there, 25 and under. We gather in gatherings, which is in groups like 50 and above, like Embrace and Rich or whatever, right? Or Empower. And then our services. And so our perspective is that if someone is at a phase where they don't come to Sunday service but just go to life group, that's fine. Because that's where they want, perhaps they need in that season and time. As long as we see the value of groups and gatherings. Is this okay? Yeah? Let me keep going. Number two. Reproducibility. Healthy disciples reproduce disciples. Yeah? Maturity is not marked by just how much you know of the Bible. It's what you reproduce. If you're a godly person and you reproduce godliness into someone else, Christ-centeredness in someone else, that is a healthy mark of a disciple. Because healthy disciples reproduce other disciples. But what does that look like? So that's why you see in baptisms, I know some people who've come from different environments and different church backgrounds, you go, how come the pastors aren't the one baptizing? Well, first of all, Matthew 28 says to all of us, go and make that you know, disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yeah? And so when I read that, I'm going, hang on. We say we believe that, then we don't let the everyday ordinary people who reaches out, disciples people, and don't let them baptize, there's a bit of a gap. Right? Because Jesus wants us to reproduce disciples. And so because of that, in terms of baptisms, you see in our church, we go, if you, God used you to disciple that person, you then also have the privilege to baptize them. And that's why we begin to put stuff online so that we can put resources and teachings that will not water down about what baptism is and enable you to be able to do that with someone so we can reproduce that, baptisms. The second thing is the role of leadership. You know, many people would say, and it's not that we don't, you know, many people go, what, what is the role of a pastor? It's to care for people. It is true. It's not that we don't care, okay? We still do pastoral care. But I believe our role, we value reproducibility. My role is now to help you care for someone else. Can I hear an amen? Right? If you read in Ephesians, it says that God has given the church Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, right? What is the role of the pastor? To equip the saints to pastor other people. Can I hear an amen? What is the role of the teacher? To teach the saints to be able to teach other people. 
What is the role of the prophet? To be able to enable the people of God to hear from God for themselves and to be able to help others do so. Yeah? And so if we value reproducibility, it shifts our role into a much more equipping role. Because to be honest, like I talked to my accountant. He has more pastoral cases than I would ever have. Yeah? How many of us accountants, right? You have your own practice, you speak to people, you're opening their finances, you've got a door into their life. How is there no pastoral care happening there? Of course there is. How do we help equip you to be able to be the care of Jesus in that situation? That is the value of reproducibility in action. Is this going okay? Let's see how you guys are tracking me here. Number three, A, actively hear and obey. Through hearing and obeying the living word, so not the word from five years ago that you read, the living word, right? The living word, this is how we work with God to see change in us and others. You see in Matthew, he talks about how is it that you build a house that when the storms come, it will not fall. It's not knowledge. It's you hearing and obeying. Can I hear amen? Let's say hearing. hearing. Obeying. Obeying. Hearing. hearing. Obeying. But sometimes what do we do in church? Right? We understand, discuss. Understand, discuss. Understand more, discuss. Now, I'm not against that. But I'm saying it's hearing, which requires knowing, and obeying. Can I hear an amen? So how, if we really value that, it doesn't, so we're not as focused on the form in which you will teach. But what we are care about is that there is a value that when you come to the Word of God, there is this heart that says, I will hear and obey everything it says. And how do we create and foster that value in the heart? Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? That's why I think sometimes people have misunderstood the way we teach and preach here as if we're not teaching the Word of God. No, 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 no. We value the Word of God. Can I say undeniably? It is the final authority over our life. But our approach is different. And that's why, because we value actively in hearing and obeying, the thing I want to be able to coach and equip into people is to equip the posture of the heart. You can know stuff, but if you're not willing to obey this is a closed book to you. There is no power. God can't be at work in you. What does it say about the parable of the sowers, right? God sows the seed. What is the issue? That you don't receive the seed? Of course you receive the seed. It's your heart. Can I hear an amen? Is it distracted? Is it compromised? Or is it one that says, I will hear and obey whatever the Lord says, as difficult as it may be in my life. It is the final authority over every issue in life. Is that the heart? And so we try to teach and preach with a focus on that posture of the heart. We have a focus on obedience more than just knowledge. It is important, but it's important to obey. I'll give you an example. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? I want to put it in perspective. I believe the Word of God is important. I believe it's the inspired Word of God, and God speaks through it. But I'm talking about this value of hearing and obeying. 
I rather like I look, I look at it in my sons right now. I can't teach them all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelations. To I can teach them and they can parrot me information back. I can tell you that, but I can tell at the heart level, are they really believing and trusting that this word I can build my life on? Right, that is different. And the way to coach that is to go, okay, is there a life situation in your life right now? Right? Let's say I get angry and God says forgive. Well, you have a choice. Is what God's word true or not? Do you want to forgive or not? Yeah? And when he experiences forgiveness and experiences the power of it, then it's like, yes, God's word is true. You can build your life on that. Right? And because of that, he builds trust. Trust in the word of God, maybe in one area, but not in another area. And over time, bit by bit, you begin to trust that the word of God can be trusted in every area of our life. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? And the third thing is, it's life-focused. You know, many people of us, and we try to do the balance of book, preaching, and topical. But some of us will go, oh, we're not preaching, you know, uh, the word in in an expository kind of way, in a systematic way. The reason is, is because we have a life focus. It's not about topical or book study. It's because we believe about discipleship. And God uses life as a way to disciple us in our character. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? That's why we do what we do. Okay? Now, fourthly, connecting. Jesus connected with God, those near and far from God, right? And this is where we don't want to be just a Christian clique. Yeah? We don't want to be so holy with no relevance because God didn't say, be a salt in the salt shaker. He says, be the salt of the earth. Yeah? Right? And so it's important that we have this balance of all these three relationships, right? So how does that play out? So in every group, gathering and service, we want to make sure we have all three relationships there. Can I hear an amen? Right? In this service, for example, if all we do is use Christian language and people have no idea what you're talking about and no people who are non-Christians want to come into this space, we are not winning. This is not the value at work in this space. And so that's why when we look at the fruitfulness, when a group or gathering or service is becoming a disciple-making ministry, it's important for them to connect with those near and far from God. The second thing we do is we try and find one language. Speak as much as we can in the language we use here as you can use in the world. We're taking steps towards that. And the third is public Christianity. Why do we talk about gender identity? Because there's no divide between the private and the public. And how do we model that through the platform? Now, now fifthly, everyday moments. The Holy Spirit uses everyday moments to make us more like Jesus. Yeah? And that's what he used to grow our character. How do we do that? That's why we talk about things like personal growth, relationships, work, money. When we talk about financial discipleship, it means when you're thinking about budgeting, you're thinking about saving, you're thinking about investing, that is also a discipleship moment for you. Can I hear an amen? Right? I say this all the time. No one comes to the church to learn about money. But I go, why not? Why not? The Word of God says so much about money. But the constant messaging you would hear is about just giving and tithing. But we believe in financial discipleship, the stewardship of all areas of finances. And so that's why if you go into our YouTube link, you will find that if you look at our playlist, you'll see it divided into those categories. So that when you are going, I'm going through grief. I want to know how to hear the Holy Spirit. 
It's all there for you, right? To be able to equip you in that, okay? You guys going all right? Yeah? Now, I need someone to help me with this um, iPad. It's gone a little bit uh, disconnected. So that is what the kind of culture, the disciple-making grace values, and I wanted to share some of that because I think that's important for you to begin to understand. When we start making some changes and rolling things out, you will understand why we do what we do so that you can come on board and journey through this together. Yeah. Now, let me land the plane here. If I can get the worship team, that'd be great. What does this mean for you? My question is, how are you living the grace values out? It's one thing for us to hear it preach from the pulpit. It's another thing for us to experience it among the people. Can I hear an amen? If this vision, if we're going to build a culture, it need to translate from the pulpit into us as the people. Where you hear, oh, when you're talking about writing a settlement draft or whatever, oh, this is how you think about it. That's great. You rub shoulders there. I love the fact that I rub shoulders with, um, um, where, where is she? Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth Pentelian, right? She's a single mom, right? But she runs a life group, right? And not only that, she came across people uh, as part of the Ukrainian families that needed help and she bought like groceries for them. And when I rub shoulders around someone like that, I'm going, I know what it's like to be a single parent. That's supernatural. That's Jesus living inside of her and it just inspires you and just go, wow, this is what this can look like. When someone else begins to live in a different way and they're, and they're everyone everywhere and everything, then as we begin to do that, embrace the everyday moments, reproducibility, hear and obey the word of God, as we begin to do all those things, can you imagine what this is going to look like? Can you imagine? Can I hear an amen? Yeah, we're not templating and cookie-cutting one kind of person. We're saying we want the Holy Spirit to be at work in you and living this redemptive vision out in your life. I'll finish off with this. And that's why in 1 Peter 2, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what the priesthood of all believers look like. Look, if I sat with you, we do one-to-one, it's a different thing. But how do we lead a church of 630 people, guys? into the same vision. We need to build a culture. We need to start with some of these values. We need to begin to live it one life at a time. And as we begin to do that, we will see this vision come to pass. And this is a bit that I want to finish with. Yeah, I was um, spending some time with the Lord on, on, uh, this Wednesday, and then I was, um, I was in St. Kilda Beach, and it was really interesting. I went to the Lord walk on St. Kilda Fitzroy Road, but little did I know, I've never been there for a long, long time, but I came across the Victorian Pride Center. How many of us have seen that? Yeah? It's like a building. It's an incredible building, but a, a building for, for the, the LGBTIQ plus community. And when you walk in there, it talks about the history of the LGBTIQ movement. And there's a co-working space and all that. And I took a photo of it because it's like a modern day temple. Like you gotta go there and check it out. It's like, like it's a statement. It's incredible, right? And then, I was walking along the beach and, and having lunch, and then I came across this text 
So imagine my journey. I saw that, and then I, I came across this text. And in 2 Samuel 6, so this is when David had become king over Israel. Yep, he conquered Jerusalem. And then one of the first things that David decided to do was this. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of the Covenant, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the showroom. When I read that, God spoke to me. He said this, Chi, David, when he first became the leader over Israel, one of the first things he did was to go find the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to Jerusalem. Because Zion isn't Zion without God's presence. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear an amen? This space isn't God's temple without the Holy Spirit. Yeah? But what did David do? He went to try and first thing, bring the Ark of the Covenant back. But then what had happened was the ark was being brought over, it was tipping over, and then Uzziah stepped over to try and grab it, and, and he didn't handle it well, and he died in the process. And so David was angry but fearful, and he left it at Obed's house. And see what it says here. It says, Then King David was told, The Lord had blessed Obed's Edom's household, and everything he has. Why? Because. Everyone say because. Because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, with a great celebration. And here David could identify that Obed's blessing was attributed to nothing else but because of the ark of God, the presence of God being there. Amen? Now, I can talk about all this stuff that I've talked about and they're important. If you have to lead anything, it is. But I also know full well, it is an empty shell without the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? Unless each and every one of us encounters the Holy Spirit. And this is David before Jesus' time. But now Christ has come. He's opened the way that the Holy Spirit can now reside in you and I in a permanent way. We don't need to build a temple and sing Kill the Road. The temple of God lives inside of you. And if he knows how to embrace and treasure the presence of God in his life, how much more we should too. Do you? Do we? understand the presence of God within us by the Holy Spirit do you know who he is do you know who his power is because I can preach until the cows come home but the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to will to desire to act according to his good purpose and that is why our key focus this year is about refresh to revival because we've been building this stuff, but we need God's presence sparked in the life in each and every one of us. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? So will you guys join us? I know there's a lot that I share. Some of it will switch off. Some of it is not relevant. Some of it for us, yes. But the key point is we're building a different kind of church. This vision is not just the church's vision. It's God's redemptive vision for your life. Can you see it? If you tap and walk with the Holy Spirit and see Him and embrace this, and as you begin to live it out, it begins to help each and every one of us. And this is how it becomes a spiritual house. And this is how we build a spiritual house. And so my call to each and every one of us is to go be all in. 
First step, understand who the Holy Spirit is, right? If you need to read the grace values, read it, learn it, embrace it, take your next step around that. But we've got these prayer meetings that's happening on Zoom. We want to encourage you as a vehicle. You don't have to feel obligated to, but as a vehicle to be able to say, let's begin to fan the flame, right? Of the presence of God in our life so that we can fully surrender and yield to Him and see what He's going to do. So why don't we all rise to our feet? Let me just um, uh, pray and then we'll, we'll, we'll hand it to the team. Lord God, we just really want to come before you. God, um, as a representation like David is, God, I want to be able to pray and come before you and say, Lord, I know, you know, we've, we've so to speak seized Jerusalem. Lord God, we know we're kind of fighting the enemies. But Lord God, we know we can dress this place up. We can run things. But Lord God, unless your presence is alive, unless we're surrendered to your Holy Spirit, unless we know the intimacy of your Spirit and know how to be guided and led and empowered by you, this is just a shell without life. But Lord God, we just pray, God, that like David, is there a way where even though the Spirit is within us, that we can, so to speak, bring the Ark of the Covenant back into your house, back into our individual lives, that so that collectively we are this empowered, life-giving, alive, joyful people of God that is meant to represent you to our everyone, everywhere, with everything. So we just want to surrender this to you, God. We just pray, have your way in each and every one of us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.